This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, digjacobin, all lowercase. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What happened to American empire? We see evidence of crisis at home, where mass uprisings have brought the legitimacy of the police in the era of neoliberal mass incarceration into unprecedented question. The crisis is also plenty evident abroad, as is evident from the U.S.'s humiliating failure to tame COVID-19 and from its bellicose attacks on the WHO and China. This crisis, of course, isn't new. The so-called American century had built multilateral institutions through which the U.S. could exercise global power. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, the unilateralism at the core of American imperium began to operate free of checks and constraints, and also, increasingly, free of any sort of legitimating principle. It's not so much, perhaps, that the raw materiality of U.S. power is in crisis, but rather that the rationale for U.S. power is in crisis. Donald Trump and his brazen disregard for global institutions, then, are not a break with the history that has come before so much as its consummation. This is something with deep roots, stretching way back. And I go way, way back today with my two returning guests, Asla Bali and Aziz Rana, who look to this long history to explain the current geopolitical moment. Both globally and at home, American power that has for a long time now failed to secure or even seek consent can no longer articulate a credible principle for the exercise of its violence. Here and everywhere, the legitimacy of American force is being questioned and challenged. This episode is more about the global sphere, but I discuss the domestic side of American imperial violence, particularly cops and immigration enforcement in a discussion of my book, All-American Nativism, that I recently did with Aziz. And I'll be posting that discussion as a podcast special over the weekend. Lots of Aziz Rana this week on The Dig. Anyhow, before we get started, I'm asking you, my listeners, to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. It is only because of your contributions that I can put out The Dig every week. And it's also thanks to your contributions that I can put out Antibody, our new narrative series on life and politics under COVID, which I hope you have listened to and enjoyed. There's one more episode 
coming out next week. And it's the sort of thing I would like to do more often. And we can do that because all of you so generously support us at patreon.com slash the dig. We also, if you contribute at least $10 a month, hook you up with a left-wing book or books. Please take a quick moment now to go to patreon.com slash the dig and contribute what you can. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, anyhow, on to the show. Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell Law School and the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom. He is currently finishing a book titled Rise of the Constitution on the modern emergence of constitutional veneration in the United States and its lasting political effects. Asla Bali is a visiting professor of law at the Yale Law School and professor of law at UCLA School of Law. She is currently working on an edited volume tentatively titled From Revolution to Devolution on prospects for decentralized governance in the Middle East. I will link to their co-authored University of Chicago Law Review article, Constitutionalism in the American Imperial Imagination, in the show notes. Aziz Rana and Asla Bali, welcome back to The Dig. It's great to be here. So great. Thank you, Dan, for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. I want to start out with one big picture question and then dive into things in a more historical chronology. The old order was, and the extent that it still exists, is bad. But should we celebrate its demise given just all of these morbid symptoms emerging from its slow collapse during what seems to be a never-ending interregnum? So I don't think that we should, you know, celebrate the demise, but I also think we should really avoid nostalgia about what the world looked like, let's say, in the 1950s and 1960s. So, you know, the quote unquote post-war liberal international order was really hardly liberal. If you just think about the sheer amount of violence that, you know, U.S. interventions perpetrated on the world. So, you know, directly through things like the Vietnam War, but also indirectly through things like the genocide in Indonesia, that the amount of chaos and instability, especially in the global south and decolonizing and newly independent states, was really extreme. And so for, for that reason, I think it's better to just sort of think of of like that moment as one punctuated by stability and violence and this moment as one punctuated by stability and violence and in fact you know for all of the terrors of the present there's a way in which the move away from just straight american unipolarity that's marked the global order since 89 has its own potential benefits that a multipolar world can create the possibility for regional powers civil society actors to have more control in shaping the direction of you know future politics now that that could also go in like you know very very bad directions but it's not clear to me that as an ethical matter it's significantly worse than the kind of violence we saw in the past i would certainly agree with those points and i would add that the idea that we're in an interregnum or that we might be at the end of a particular order itself should be queried. Mm-hmm. It depends on an understanding of the so-called American century or the liberal international order. 
that it's, it is itself sort of a misapprehension of the history. So the history of the period that we've thought of in these terms was one not largely of unipolarity. For much of the 20th century, it was a bipolar order. And then there was a period of unipolarity following the end of the Cold War and a post-Cold War period in which the United States became especially accustomed to being able to act unilaterally and without constraint. And now we may be on the cusp of moving into a different order, but one in which the United States remains the dominant military and economic power with rivals. And that actually resembles other orders that have also existed in a period in which we understood the system as being a so-called liberal international order or an American century. So the question is, not so much should we be nostalgic for the end of something, which I think we can raise a question mark and then also query the character of, along exactly the lines that Aziz presented, but rather understanding whether or not in this moment there are particular possibilities that we should explore without answering the question, are we in an interregnum or are we at the end of the American century? Because I do think that those remain open questions. And then the, if that's the way we're going to understand it, rather than worrying about nostalgia or what the character of this or that earlier moment of the sort of combination of American military and economic might had wrought, I think the better question is how might we use the current posture if you're trying to think through what a progressive left foreign policy might look like in order to reimagine what a multipolar order at this moment can mean, particularly because there are a lot of ways in which this pandemic represents a crisis that will generate some measure of reordering, whether it's about the end of this you know, or that particular way of thinking about geopolitics, there's no doubt that there's an opportunity here to rethink what is the approach at the global level to multilateral cooperation around a whole host of global questions of the global commons. There's, and again, as you suggested, that is, is a set of open possibilities which could go in a terrible direction, but could also go in a more progressive direction. The question is how can we shape our thinking about what would be necessary as a set of political investments and political prescriptions to be able to have that move, this moment of reordering be one that produces a progressive outcome. Can I just add uh, something else here too, which is if in a way the ultimate question is, what are the conditions that are going to facilitate the emergence and strength of left internationalism? I actually think it's really important to specify what we mean by unraveling or interregnum, because in a way there are at least three different things that have essentially been sort of combined together in, in talking about like the demise of the post-war order. So one has to do with the American century, the idea of US primacy and dominance globally. And it doesn't strike me that the American century is coming to a close. It might be the case, and we'll get into this in our conversation, that like the legitimating ideological grounds that justified it are facing real strain. But that doesn't mean that the actual real material and military power that the U.S. has is under some you know, significant breakdown. So there's one question about the American century. There's a second question that's about the international order and the type of international order that we see. And this is the point that Uslo was making, which is, you know, there have been periods where we've had bipolarity, unipolarity. And so they've been shifts really since 45, like the Rooseveltian high tide of the 40s is really different than what happens post-89, which is really different than what we're seeing now. And so that there might be shifts that are taking place in the international order that should be explored. And then there's a third thing, which is the stuff that I'd, you know, I, I've written about with um, the piece Goodbye Cold War. And that's the idea that 
domestically in the U.S. since 1945, there's been an account of American exceptionalism that in a way got supercharged post-89 that justifies why the U.S. should be the dominant global power and makes an argument about like the special characteristics of the country's own internal institutions and practices. And that's the thing that I think post-2016 is really unraveling and you know can't quite be put back together again. But all three are really quite distinct. When we think about whether or not we're at the end of a period and that whether this calls for a certain kind of nostalgia, I think there's almost an inevitable um, turn to nostalgia that's partly triggered by the specific character of the current U.S. administration. So there's something about the vulgarity and coarseness with which Trump asserts American primacy, insists on the use of coercive measures, engages in a kind of ethno-nationalist framing of adversaries that produces a desire reflexively, I think, amongst many Americans and also amongst traditional U.S. allies for an earlier kind of American power, a different kind of iteration of American power. And against that backdrop, there is a way of characterizing or framing Biden as a refreshing return to a kind of earlier time when the U.S. presented a kind of legitimate face for American primacy. And I think there, again, we need to be careful. And I know we'll get into this more down the line with respect to the kinds of policy prescriptions that a Biden presidency or, or that kind of nostalgia might be connected to. But more importantly, nostalgia or not, the idea that it is still going to be possible to return to the legitimating frames that made a particular account of American power possible in a moment in which the United States was understood as not only the author of a set of constitutional principles domestically and internationally for the um, constitution of the multilateral institutional framework of a rules-based international order, but also that it was standing behind the legitimacy of that order through practices of self-constraint and engagement as a legitimate leader that supported as a set of moral commitments, equality, liberty, self-governance, and so forth, the sort of uh, commitments that we talk about in our writing as congruent with the original constitutional imagination of the U.S. international order. All of that has been tarnished in a way that is really difficult to recover, whether or not you have a better salesman uh, for the American brand uh, from one uh, administration to the next. So what Trump represents, notwithstanding his coarseness, is in many ways the sort of um, realization of a logic that has been present from the moment of the post-Cold War order through the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and now Trump. And what we've seen is a kind of oscillation between good salesmen and bad salesmen, as I've just put it. So the Clinton version versus the Bush version and hand-wringing when an American president or an American sort of presentation of self appears to be inarticulate and coherent and incompetent in a variety of ways that were anxieties produced by the Bush administration and now have been redoubled under the Trump administration. But the fact that you can have a kind of Clinton or an Obama, as we saw with the imagined reset that the Obama administration represented for a return to commitment to rules-based order, is in fact um, more about appearances than about substance. It's just not possible to return. So like to your question about should we be nostalgic, there's something 
deceptive about that nostalgia that enables us to adopt framings about the present that distort what's actually going on. And I think it's important for us to look again at what was the nature of the kind of legitimation of the project and why are those terms no longer available today? Because that is the one thing that has changed. American primacy for the reasons as you laid out and that I mentioned earlier is not changing in terms of just sh- a sheer account of American power in the international order. But that's a slightly different question than the capacity to legitimate that American leadership. And to the extent that any order is going to be a sort of mix of consent and coercion, it's clear that the United States pendulum is swinging hard in the direction of a coercive frame in order to manage its leadership of the international system. Was a factor in facilitating this shift that American settler colonialism and Western expansion, this century, century-long post-revolutionary project to build a continental empire, that, that this later smoothed the way to providing an exceptionalist ideological justification for global empire because there was never any kind of neat dividing line between the U.S.'s inside and outside. The foreign was, was always potentially future domestic territory. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think... The the reason why you have the growth of arguments about the need for the U.S. to assert power globally at the end of the 19th, early 20th century is really closely tied to the closing of the frontier. And one of the things that's that's interesting is the closing of the frontier takes place, not coincidentally, at a moment of real kind of ideological and institutional crisis in the U.S. So you have heightened internal white class conflict through industrialization. You have large numbers of new immigrants that are coming from different parts of the world. So like Chinese immigrants, uh, Eastern and Southern European immigrants. Um, You have the politics uh, in the post-Civil War period around race with African-Americans that were formerly enslaved. And so all of these issues are kind of raising basic questions about what are the organizing principles within the society. And one response, this is the response given by folks like Teddy Roosevelt, is that you have to double down essentially on conquest and expansion as the thing that's been the driving principle generating social cohesion in the U.S. And so you have the move abroad to the Spanish-American War, to claiming territory like the Philippines. But almost immediately, what Americans confront in places like the Philippines is precisely the fact that they're like latecomers to the traditional story of, of empire. This is what we sort of began with. And also that you can't just demographically transform this new territory. The way that empire had worked in the U.S. was by settling land and demographically transforming the the territory into what amounts to you know a white republic. And you just can't do that, frankly, in places like the Philippines. You can't even do that in places like Puerto Rico. And so it raises these basic questions about, well, if you're asserting power abroad, if you're claiming territory, but you can't make them sort of like settler polities, well, what's going to be the meaning of American power? And the meaning of American power increasingly moves away from direct colonial dependencies to this idea of the projection of American authority and the kind of reconstruction of foreign states in keeping with basic American domestic institutions. So um, market, statecraft, constitutional organization, And so there's clearly then a kind of continuity between the settler moment and what we can think of as the growing emergence of the American century, but they're organized very differently. So these are are distinct frames of American empire that effectively like overlap and kind of interpenetrate 
um, into one another. I'm struck by the idea that there's like a there is the kind of like eclipse of one myth and rise of another myth that basically coincide. Uh, and I wonder if you agree with that. So like the, the myth of the frontier is really the principal way that Americans understand themselves. If, if I read you correctly, uh, you know, through to the beginning of the 20th century and then the account of the city on a hill and American exceptionalism that then ju- then sort of tr- transforms itself into the legitimating frame that we've been describing by the middle of the 20th century is kind of in some ways, even for domestic consumption purposes, never mind justification of empire, a kind of shift that is occasioned by the kind of need to reevaluate what is the place of the United States in the world when the world, I mean, the world frontier becomes one that, as you say, is no longer available for settler colonization. So I wonder if that kind of ties to, I don't know if that like periodization of myth sort of captures your overlapping um, and interconnected uh, frames point that you ended on, Aziz, but I just wondered if if you would agree with that account. I was thinking, I I was thinking around the same, along the same lines, Aziz, that, that this dawn of constitutionally legitimated innocent global Imperium coincided with the erasure of settler colonialism at, at, at home and the 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 rise of, of of stories that Americans told about themselves like nation of immigrants. I think that's absolutely right. And so, one of the ways that we can tell this story is like, well, how is it that a society that was engaged in a project of settler imperial conquest from the earliest days of colonization comes by the late twentieth century to essentially no longer even see itself in these terms? And that erasure, I think, has a lot to do with the transformations that take place in the first half of the 20th century and then get cemented with the establishment of the post-World War II international order and the Cold War, where the U.S. comes to conceive of its power through principles of constitutionalism rather than straightforward conquest. But it's really important to recognize how these two frames of empire are fundamentally joined together. It's the settler imperial mode that lays the conditions for the way in which the U.S. asserts power globally in the 20th century. And it's not like settler colonialism disappears. It still has these profoundly structuring dynamics in terms of the way in which the U.S. relates to various excluded communities, both at home and abroad. And so it's not one moment in time replaced by another, but in a deep sense, the two kind of fold into one another without any kind of straight chronology. It's just that the dominant mode of ideological self-expression and the kinds of institutions that the U.S. is promoting um, internationally are framed around this new vision of an American century. Okay, let's step back way back in time, because I think to understand the post-war order and then whatever sort of moment of transition we're in today, we should perhaps first explain how it grew out of the European age of of empires that came before. You both write, quote, at the dawn of the 20th century, elites who favored an aggressive American role abroad had long found themselves facing a basic dilemma. Policies ranging from participation in World War I to engaging directly with European power politics to establishing a permanent peacetime security infrastructure all faced intense internal opposition and seemed to contradict longstanding isolationist and anti-militarist sentiments. But, you continue, quote, defenders of greater international authority began against the backdrop of American militarism in the Philippines, the Americas, and especially during World War I, to intertwine new foreign policy commitments with an account of the federal constitution in national identity. Explain this transition that leads to this founding of, of what some called the American 
have called the American century from from this conflict over over naked overseas imperialism during the Spanish-American War through the World War II era moral cloak for intervention that that continued throughout the Cold War. Yeah. So I think the big thing here is that the U.S. becomes a global power in the early 20th century at a very particular moment in global history, which is a time after all of the primary colonies um, in the global south have already been claimed. And when you're starting to see real anti-colonial nationalist self-assertion by non-white communities. And what one of the things that this means is that you have American elites that spent a lot of time in the context of like the Philippines during World War One and sort of thinking about uh, policies within the, the Western Hemisphere, making arguments about, well, what distinguishes American power from traditional European empires? And so what justifies the U.S. taking on an increasingly aggressive role globally? The thing that, that you know, the presentation of European empires is that they're essentially engaged in extractive projects built around direct colonial dependencies. And what you have more and more foreign policy activists say in the, in the US, and this is, you know, Wilson, but it also becomes like FDR and Roosevelt, is that no, like the thing that defines American power is that American power is motivated by a basic principle of constitutionalism, democratic self-rule that links capitalist democracy, so a commitment to uh, markets with a particular kind of state form that's organized around representative institutions and that is marked by self-limitation, constraint, the rule of law. And because that's the thing that defines American power, when the U.S. projects power abroad, what it's really projecting is a principle of self-government and legal constraint that is fundamentally opposed to the idea of extractive empire and imperialism. And so what ends up happening during these years is that American elites construct an account of American primacy that is grounded in notions of constitutionalism. And this is really significant because one of the things that comes to define like legal scholarship, but American public opinion by the time we get to the late 20th century is this idea that, well, the U.S. can't be an empire because it doesn't have direct colonies and also that constitutionalism and empire are somehow opposed categories, where in point of fact, like the way in which the U.S. constructed its own global hegemony and justified continuous intervention was precisely through an argument about the uniqueness of American powers grounded in promoting various forms of constitutionalism. Asa? So the way that we make the argument around this set of points really point is builds on two ways that the strategy works. The first one is the presentation of the United States as embodying a kind of constitutional model uh, that marries democracy and markets just along the lines that Aziz was describing. And this idea is that it's a model that advances self-governance, as he says, constraint, but also prosperity. And it's an attractive model, and it needs to be an attractive model because the United States is operating at the very moment that it's establishing this sort of set, set of conditions for the protection of its own power against a backdrop of a significant ideological rival. And that ideological rival in the Soviet Union itself is presenting a story of its own development in the 20th century that is actually in many respects more closely aligned to the sort of experience of the global south, the very place where the United States is competing ideologically for allies and for, to expand its sphere of influence. The Soviet Union story is that of a state that is formed 
out of the crucible of war, is able to industrialize very rapidly, commits itself to socialist principles, and is able to be victorious in a war against the major industrial power, European industrial power of the day, and that and is from the outset both anti-Germany. Nazi Germany, anti-imperial in its very foundation uh, story of the Russian Revolution, but also committed to racial egalitarianism, to you know socialist principles at home, redistribution, and so on. So that is a potent and attractive model at the moment in the post-war period when the United States is seeking to to craft this account of its legitimacy in ways that are not only resonant at home, and of course they are resonant at home for the reasons that Aziz just described, but also are going to be an attractive alternative to what the Soviet Union is offering. So there's this idea that you, first of all, look to the sort of um, character of what the United States is able to provide domestically to its own constituencies in terms of both self-governance and prosperity, and then transform transnationally diffuse this model and offer packages of assistance and and support that will enable the American tide to lift all boats. So that's one piece of the account of presenting a kind of constitutional model that has these features. And then the other part of it is establishing an an international order, and this is more the kinds of work that I do is focusing on this, that itself is a reflection of the American constitutional imagination. So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is imagined as a kind of bill of rights for the international system. The United Nations Charter is understood as a kind of constitution for the world. The Bretton Woods institutions are understood as a way to basically regulate market economies worldwide and ensure a kind of level of economic stability that will not be disrupted in the ways that the Great Depression produced devastating lessons globally, so maintain multilateral cooperation in a variety of ways. For these institutions to make sense as part of the projection of the U.S. constitutional imagination, they have to also have some constraining force for the United States. That's what it means for the United States to stand behind a rule-based order. So that's the basic package that the United States presents in the post-war period. But what makes that package so important for American elites is precisely that it be attractive as a counterweight to the Soviets. When you take that bipolar context, what happens is a slow unraveling. That's really the story that we try to tell in our work, in which the constraint that required the United States itself to remain within the rule-based order is removed, and increasingly a series of step-by-step defections by the United States from its own order tell the story of ways in which the United States itself is attacking the legitimating framework of its own hegemony in ways, again, that makes that story, the story, the moral commitments that undergird an international order, consensual international order backed by American primacy, less and less compelling. You also write that the system for securing consent for the liberal order played into legitimating rampant illiberal actions that the U.S. oversaw and undertook from coups to military invasions. Quote, the vision of American imperium that marked the Cold War was always an unstable one, cyclically breaking down under the internal weight of its own inherent contradictions. But crucially, even in the context of these tensions, such as during the Vietnam War, the persistent tendency of policymakers was to revive and defend the ideology of American imperium. The destructive consequences of U.S. power were justified time and again either as aberrations necessitated by the imperatives of anti-communism or unfortunate transitional developments on the way to full-fledged liberal democracy. Asla, how did liberal constitutionalism as, as a principle legitimate violations of liberal constitutionalism in practice? 
I think one way to begin is to think about the ways in which the United States presents its own interests as coterminous with the interests of the world as a whole, pre precisely because it stands for this sort of moral and legitimate framework of what governance would have to be. So in places where its interests are imperiled, by extension, rule-based order is imperiled, by extension, the, po the very possibility of sustaining legitimate forms of governance are imperiled. And as a result, a kind of worldwide ideological project, which requires that in any place, if a competitor or rival to the United States mounts a meaningful challenge, and here it's almost always understood in the Cold War as the Soviet challenge, then meeting that challenge necessitates departing from the core legitimating frame in an exceptional mode in order to reassert basic American interests that make it possible then to revert to that core legitimating framework as opposed to the allegedly deeply insidious and damaging projects that the Soviet Union itself is, it represents in the minds of American policymakers and in the self-presentation of the United States. So under these circumstances, the United States can present a threat anywhere in the international system, any set of peripheral sort of incursions on its spheres of influence as a potential vital threat to the international system, requiring that it be countered with whatever measure of coercion is necessary to put down that threat. And what this does then is establishes an order where the security of the core requires near continuous intervention in the periphery, always in the name of the democratic project, but in fact, not only under mining, in, in most instances, overthrowing democratically elected leaders in post-colonial global south, but also measures of violence that far outstrip any actual threat or actual coercion that had manifested itself in those peripheries prior to the American intervention, which is why Pax Americana gets experience then in the global south as not only a systematic sort of infusion of violence into the sort of regional context of Africa, Central America, Latin America, the Middle East, and Asia, but also that it's followed by forms of rapacious capitalist authoritarianism essentially, like the, the propping up of regimes that ensure the continuation of the American sphere of influence in that area at the price, regrettably, presented as regrettable, of this kind of, you know, inversion of the presumed trajectory towards democratization, where you have these episodic defections. And those authoritarian clients are presented as sort of an obstacle on the path, but nonetheless, the path remains one that ultimately represents an American commitment to supporting democracy in the world. And so those contradictions are reconciled because we are great, because we are good, and because we are good, what we do is definitionally good, or at least not as bad as it might look. Any threat to an order that is a U.S.-led order is can be understood as a threat to U.S. interests in a particular place that by extension is a threat to the order. So that's really the core element. It's that any time that the United States, based on its own judgment, deems its interest to be at risk, it can simply furnish an argument directly that that is a one-for-one -one correspondence to a risk to the possibility of the rule-based order that makes all of these, the prosperity, self-governance, commitments to liberty and equality, all of those things possible. Yeah, no. And the, so this is why I think the account of American exceptionalism is really key for um, uh, underwriting all of this, because the claim in a way is that the U.S. Oh. is the creator of these multilateral institutions that provide collective security, material prosperity globally, and that are grounded in mutual constraints. So that there are all of these international legal limitations on the kind of violence or actions that states can take. But for the system to work, 
there has to be standing behind it somebody that is an enforcer. And so the U.S. both sets the terms, is willing to be bound by them, but also is exceptional in the sense that at any point, it's it it's the, the country's responsibility to step outside these rules and ensure that the system is actually operating. And what that ends up, you know, producing during like the Cold War period is that, you know, it essentially reads, you know, threats anywhere globally. This is the thing that Uslo was was emphasizing as a threat to the system itself requiring the U.S. to respond. And oftentimes the claim is that, well, because, you know, um, the Soviet Union or uh, various rivals are using forms of terror, the U.S. has no choice but to use counterterror. And the thing that makes the U.S. such a moral you know, state is that it like it wrings its hands about the fact that it has to engage in this form of violence just to be able to sustain the system. Or sometimes it's going to have to back authoritarian states, let, let's say like Suharto's Indonesia. But then the argument is these states are in a transitional mode. They're going from a traditional to a modern society and that the U.S. over time is doing through market access, various kinds of rule of law initiatives is helping facilitate the trans the transformations in the country. Now, all of this, I think, ends up it can be sold both at home and frankly to many folks in the global south, in part because it's still wedded to actual material benefits. This is where like the Uslo's point about the Soviet Union as a meaningful rival is really significant because the Soviet Union is offering this example of a centrally planned developmental economy that was able to rapidly industrialize in a way that's not that different than what many countries in the global south are facing. The U.S. actually has to provide development assistance, institutional like meaningful concessions. Exactly. Like you think about, you know, what is it that McNamara does the when he leaves the U.S. government in the context of the Vietnam War. He goes and he runs the World Bank. And like, what's the World Bank's major projects? Those are huge infrastructure development projects in the global south. And so the fact that you have that these actual material benefits gives a kind of legitimacy to the acts of violence. And it means that what the way that the U.S. is operating, this is a point that Usla made as well, is significantly through consent as well as coercion. You get like the hard stick of, you know, illegal bombing campaigns in Laos and Cambodia and coups, but you also get buy-in through a system that's based on mutual limitation and through material goods that are being provided. Like this is the reason why the U.S. is the dominant material provider for all of these international institutions. It's actually in the country's self-interest. The Cold War's end gave the impression that, or confirmed to many that history had an arc, these increasingly universal waves of democratization globally, but also within the United States, which was, as the story went, always becoming this more perfect union. And the inevitability of all of that seemed confirmed by the Soviet Union's collapse. Why did the apotheosis of American power in the 1990s also turn out to be the beginning of a of a crisis in in American power. What what was it about this dog catching the car moment when with the Soviet Union vanquished, Bush proclaimed the new world order and initiated NAFTA negotiations, but suddenly Americans found their government and the prospect of world government and really the entire world out, outside of our borders so terrifying. I mean, I would start by saying that 
the account that we just gave of what uh, the context was for the presentation of multilateralism by the United States and the investment by the United States in multilateralism for domestic audiences and um, internationally had to do you know, crucially with this rivalry with the Soviet Union. So multilateralism wasn't just a means of accomplishing U.S. interests. It wasn't another sort of tool in the foreign policy toolkit. It was the legitimating frame that expressed the superiority of the model that the United States presented to the, its chief rival. When that rival is removed, the necessity of that framework also begins to fray. I mean, the idea that the United States needs to be deeply committed to a global peace dividend, for example, at the end of the Cold War, in which there should not only be a redistribution domestically that arises from the reduced need for military spending so on that's presumed with the end of the Soviet Union, but also that it should have an international dividend, that there should be some ways in which there's broader multilateral investment is something that it would be a normal and would have been a natural extension of the kinds of legitimating claims made in the, in the name of multilateralism in the 70s and 80s. But in the 1990s, it's a real problem to offer that presentation to justify to domestic audiences why it is that the United States should be spending money on overseas lending. And in this moment, in this period, you have an ascendant Republican Party that begins to directly question these ideas, you know, particularly in the wake of the first Bush administration, the George H.W. Bush administration with the rise of Clinton and demand through Congress a sort of withdrawal from international organizations and international institutions. So Jesse Helms famously leads the charge against the United Nations. The United States basically begins suspending its budgetary contributions to many of these organizations. So the very things that required the United States to be the principal sort of backstop militarily and economically for a multilateral order that that presented itself as providing the goods that Aziz described um, a moment ago is no longer presumptively necessary in the same way and becomes open to a set of domestic arguments internally. But also you had a moment, the high watermark of sort of internationalism, if you want, in the sort of military expression of US power was the Gulf War, was the first 1991 Gulf War where the United States gets the backing of the Security Council, engages in coalition action, and then accomplishes its ends and places Iraq under a punitive sanctions regime. And that was the moment of the New World Order. That's the moment when George H.W. Bush proclaims, actually, interestingly, in September 11th, 1991, I believe it is, that he makes this proclamation. And of course, in an that address to Congress, right? In an address to Congress, exactly. So it's after the end of the war. So it's 1991, the New World Order. And then shortly thereafter, Bush himself and the vision that he was articulating is defeated internally, electorally. And then you get the period that Aziz and I write about in this essay, which is the arrival of the Clinton administration and the beginning of a series of defections. And those defections take the form of an increasing willingness on the part of the United States to, to begin with, to set aside the preferences or interests of other states in the international system and act unilaterally, not necessarily through the multilateral institutions that it had set up and not in the name of the multilateral order or rule-based order that it had sort of, uh, that it had authored. So you have this take the form of, first of all, a reluctance to sign on to new international institutions. So what do you have at the end of the 1990s that emerges? You have the International Criminal Court, you have the Kyoto uh, Accord. The United States wants to be at the table shaping the nature of these institutions, but at the end of the day, it's not prepared to actually engage in the constraint necessary to participate in them. At the same time, you have the United States 
basically asserting authority to intervene militarily in order to reshape in the name of different kinds of principles. So in the 1990s, it's humanitarianism. Shortly thereafter, it, it succeeded by counterterrorism, but a set of prerogatives that require it not to travel through the UN Security Council process or multilateral institutions, but to establish ad hoc coalitions of interest and like-minded states acting together to reshape the terms of the underlying architecture of the international system in ways that are more beneficial to their own interests with much less regard for whether or not this is going to uh, command consent in the remainder of the world, in part because there isn't a viable alternative. So the very logic of the end of history or the culmination and arc that you're describing itself underwrites an account that says there's an inevitability and a natural reality to American hegemony that no longer requires the kind of defense that was presented through multilateral order in an earlier rivalrous um, geopolitics. And so this, again, is a reminder that the American century, so-called American century, for a large chunk of the 20th century was one that was not at all about unipolarity. And once it becomes a unipolar order, it actually changes its character in, in some very important ways. You know, I think that the point that us is making it is like really important because in part, like it also helps explain why if, you know, you were to talk to like the Clintons or Bush Jr., they would not see themselves as defecting from the post-war order. They would see themselves as the folks that are really the protectors, champions of that order in various ways. And the reason why is because they're essentially emphasizing the centrality of American exceptionalism, the idea that it's like the U.S. that undergirds all of these institutions. And it's appropriate, therefore, like in the context of humanitarian intervention or even in the context of the Iraq War, for the U.S. at times to step outside of its own, like, imposed self-constraint as a way of ensuring collective security. But the problem here is that in a way they're doubling down on one element of the like Cold War politics, but without the other element that was really key, which is precisely because you know the Cold War era was a bipolar era, there were these external constraints that limited the willingness of the US to engage in just like absolute unilateralism. And once those constraints are removed, and there's really no external limitations on the U.S.'s willingness to engage in unilateralism, the continuous resort to unilateralism itself ends up undermining the order, if that makes sense. So you, on the one hand, like Clinton can think of you know, himself and Hillary Clinton as well as defenders of the post-war system, but without the structure of bipolarity, the continual resort to the U.S. as the exceptional nation actually ends up undermining it. It's not so much that the logic underlying U.S. power changes so much as that the constraints within which that logic was operating internationally somewhat disappear. Absolutely. And they disappear in a way that means that multilateralism goes from being a kind of legitimating frame to strictly being a means. So now it's just a choice between do you go the multilateral, which is going to get you, in which way will you best accomplish your interest? If there's a multilateral forum that you can use, great, it's another tool in the arsenal. But if uh, the constraints are such that the best way to pursue interest in this or that moment, interests still imagined to be coterminous with the interests of the world, but nonetheless, as unilateral or through ad hoc coalitions, whatever, there's really no moral difference. There's no legitimating distinction between choosing one or the other. These are now just tools in the, in the arsenal. And that's a distinctive shift in character that is produced by the removal of constraint, but actually ends up being a profoundly normative shift. I want to follow up on 
the the domestic end of of the question I'd ask, which is the the small p domestic politics of it all. Why it was you think at this moment that beneath all the sunny triumphalism, that so many American people found the the post war order so menacing, beginning in the early nineteen nineties. We see it both in terms of far right militia stuff, but also anti anti immigrant activism in politics. The rise of of figures like Pat Buchanan. So I, I think there's lots of of explanations for what's going on. So I'll, I'll just focus on like one, you know, one element of this, which is there's a way in which, especially if you're a person of the left like myself, when you think of the Cold War period and the high tide of the, the, the Cold War, you focus on the way in which it really constrained left wing activism. And so it transformed being a genuine person of the left into effectively a dissident. So this is all of the state repression and violence that was meted out, um, especially against, for example, um, African-American activists from Du Bois to Paul Robeson to Claudia Jones to, you know, um, Robert Williams. But at the same time, this is also a period that really constrains the far right, you know, precisely because of the fact that you have these external pressures there's a real emphasis on the fact that, well, you're going to need to have something like a limited social welfare state to get domestic buy-in to show that there's an actual system of like of material prosperity that can apply globally. You're going to have to have something like uh, racial ameliorism, so civil rights reforms uh, in a context in which most of the world is non-white and you're trying to win hearts and minds vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. So it produces these pressures to both constrain left activism and also to constrain the far right. And I think one of the things that happens with the end of the Cold War is that, you know, the external pressures that generate that push against the far right essentially disappear. And, you know, there's a reversion to what had been, you know, some of the long standing ideological frames in American life that some version of white supremacy and white nationalism had been a central ideological commitment in the U.S. going all the way back to the earliest days of the Republic. And so it's not a surprise that, you know, once the lid is removed, those ideas come back. And at the same time, the other thing that I think happens, which is also really significant, is that there is this triumphalism. If you come of age in the 80s and 90s, like if, you know, the Obamas of the world, frankly, like, you know, myself, um, all of us uh, that are on this call, that there's a way in which, you know, it can really seem like there's no other meaningful model besides the American one, capitalist democracy, combined with a set of, you know, legal institutions that mark uh, American politics. And that kind of triumphalism also makes you very wary of thinking that other ideological alternatives actually have popular support. It means that you kind of de-emphasize the perceived threat that comes, for example, from the far right, because this is just viewed as aberrational. The story that uh, national elites have been telling for half a century is like, well, this is just aberrational. It's not really part of national identity. It's a small number of folks. It doesn't have meaningful power. And even as the Republican Party increasingly just becomes dominated by these perspectives, you can say, well, the the Republican Party and the Democratic Party more or less agree on things. They might have slightly different valences, but, you know, there isn't really a fundamental ideological conflict. And I think those two features, the removal of the external constraint and the sense of triumphalism are what together kind of produce the surprise that many folks in the American political center experience when Trump gets elected, which is like, oh, my God, what what is this country? This isn't the country that I'm familiar with. 
I think there's also something about the void that's left by the Soviet Union's disappearance as this enemy around which the entirety of U.S. politics for decades has been organized around. And people are still primed to look for an enemy. And coincident with the fall of the Soviet Union, you have a plausible account of a new enemy in this kind of intensively globalizing economic order. One thing to think about in understanding how, for example, the Clintons think of themselves as defending the post-war or the post-war order, the international order as we know it, is in the absence of the Soviet Union, there is a constant search for monsters on the part of the U.S. foreign policy establishment to identify the new threat that requires American vigilance, that requires American to continue its role as the arbiter of the international system. And in the 1990s, that threat are rogue actors, rogue states. And there are sort of, there's like a constellation of them, and they require a kind of the Defense Department to think about a two and a half theater war, et cetera. And these rogues are popping up in various places, and they justify, again, exceptional U.S. application of violence, right? But this is now not... And so in the Cold War, you had a multilateral order that basically ruled out direct confrontation between the United States and its principal rival, the Soviet Union. Now you have an order where not only that constraint is removed, but the United States is actually engaged in direct military confrontation with a variety of much smaller actors in order to continue to justify its frame. And here the question becomes, well, Absent those constraints, why is the United Nations, for example, not serving as a better instrument of our interests, which are, of course, again, coterminous with the interests of the world? It should, in all instances, support, for example, U.S. humanitarian motivations in its actions in Bosnia and later in Kosovo. And anything less than that is evidence that something about these institutions themselves need reform. So there's, on the one hand, a continuation of the the kind of violence that accompanies Pax Americana in the face of these new threats. And then on the other hand, there's a querying of, are these institutions the right institutions to advance the, our new understanding of our interests? Rogues give way, of course, to terrorists after 9-11, and you have a worldwide counterterrorism paradigm, which again doubles down on U.S. prerogatives to use force and requires, again, a presentation at that this time more plausible than the rogue state's uh, provided of an, a worldwide ideological battle, that there's an ideological confrontation, that essentially we have a global battlefield and you're with us or against us and a kind of conception of the world that it re re returns to Manichaeanism that enables a kind of systematic sort of justification of American use of force that it's, is tied back to the register of the Cold War. So there's a dramatic desire for a, a reversion to the basic logic that made sense of the U.S. self-presentation as the arbiter of international order and the guarantor of international stability, but under circumstances in which none of the rivals actually have bear any common features to the ones that actually were present in the Cold War, and moreover, where U.S. action is increasingly not only defecting from the international institutions that were originally designed to manage that earlier competition, but also is producing instability and violence worldwide without the concomitant benefits of either stabilizing the core or providing prosperity. And so essentially the, the ways in which the U.S. continues to revert to the Cold War frame has the effect instead of undermining the architecture that had been the legitimating frame for its hegemony. So what you get is a kind of crisis in the articulation of the legitimacy of the project, even as you continue to have American economic and military dominance that is that is essentially unchallenged, because certainly these rivals that are being framed in the 90s and then in the 2000s to the present are in no way 
capable of threatening American primacy, American dominance in any meaningful sense. And so the monsters that the United States um, is inventing in order to preserve the Cold War frame are also in their own way failing either to serve as a constraint or to provide the kind of legitimacy that the United States needs. Now, China presents an alternative that is much more comfortable in enabling everyone to revert to a great power rivalry and structuring their understanding of uh, geopolitical order in ways that are even more dangerous and more dangerously, I mean, the analogy to the Cold War is more dangerously off than even in these earlier rogue and counterterrorism frames. You write, quote, What is noteworthy about the present moment is that the old coercive means of Cold War security policy have persisted, but now occur disconnected from previous aspirational ends. And, quote, the U.S. retreat as a matter of basic principle from its own organizing frameworks has generated an imperial politics devoid of coherent justification. You were just getting into this a little, but what is the significance that there used to be a pretext and that they're no longer... Is What does that mean for the world order that the great superpower that built and oversaw that order increasingly no longer even bothers to point to any moral principle to justify its rule? And what does this void of principle reveal about what Donald Trump represents as a political figure, both domestically and in the global context? In a way, like this question is about what does it mean to be in a situation where the U.S. still has the power, the material and military power, but it it doesn't have the kind of justifying uh, ideology and frame that can convince others to to kind of like willingly participate in American projects. And it's that divide that I think this moment really embodies and represents. And kind of going back to something that both Usla and I have mentioned, in a way it has to do with this question about like, how is it that empires operate? Do they operate, they, you know, all empires operate through some kind of combination of consent and coercion. And what happens when the way that you operate increasingly moves towards like the coercion end? And I think that that's sort of what we're seeing. So if the U.S. has essentially defected from its own system, and I mean, there are two other things that are also really significant. It has a domestic political order that's widely understood as dysfunctional. So there'll be a sigh of relief in Europe if Biden gets elected, but it's not the case that anybody is going to necessarily believe in the long-term commitments of whatever a Biden administration comes up with, because that can just be replaced. Because Trump is now possible. Yeah, exactly. So that there's you no- un- You can't unthink Trump. <laughs> there's no sense that the U.S. can be relied on for long-term strategic thinking. If the U.S. is defected, you can't rely on the U.S. for long-term strategic thinking, maybe outside of like the Federal Reserve, essentially, with, with like Powell. And then the third element is, since the 1970s, the U.S. has been committed to- policies of austerity that essentially are the exact inverse of the economic principles that undergirded the post-war order. In other words, that you're basically starving the resources of parts of the global South, and that's like rebounding in the US to have all of these various like negative consequences as well. And so it it more or less means that what you'd expect is that both allies and adversaries are essentially going to try to find their own way. Like, you know, come up with their own either bilateral or multilateral approaches to various problems, and then essentially operate around the massive footprint of the U.S. So in a sense, like, you know, you have a situation where the U.S. becomes this massively powerful rogue actor that operates in a way that is utterly unpredictable, and other states have to figure out how to create something like collective prosperity and security 
in a context in which they can't rely on American authority. And that, I think, is really the present the like the world finds itself and that's sort of the meaning of Trump like less that Trump is some massive break from what the US has always been doing or you know the last 30 years but that Trump really symbolizes the fact that the US essentially you know cannot meaningfully serve as any kind of backstop and then from the, the American perspective it just it further highlights the fact that if the US is interested in pursuing its own ends and interests it increasingly is using really coercive means. And those means are either directly military or they're means like we discuss in you know, our piece on sanctions in the Boston Review, forms of economic coercion. But it's like coercion in both instances as the primary tool of American policy. In, in 2017, it, it just occurred to me a minute ago that Trump gave this really blood and soil speech in Warsaw that called on kind of tried to rally Western Christendom to to ally against the rest of the world. How, how come Trump and other far right leaders haven't been able to remake the global order along those lines? So I mean, you can imagine a universe in which there's a kind of because I mean he doesn't really mean Christendom, right? He's happy for Modi to be part of his tent. You know, it's fine. I mean, it, it just means like you have to be civilizationally aligned with my project. Uh, and you know that, and that actually, or MBS up, for that matter, or MBS exactly, it ends up being a wider tent because he's first of all he's, I mean, he has no principled commitment to Christianity either. There's no, you know, there's no there there, it's no, <laughs> all the way down. But I feel like, for the most part, much of what Trump is doing is totally consistent with bipartisan foreign policy prerogatives that you know predate him, will continue, is just like an ongoing trend. But some of the um, ethno nationalist stuff where it's projected, it's not just white nationalism at home, but also projecting these kinds of racialized yeah. frames abroad does represent a kind of break because there's the fundamental back to Lyndon Johnson appreciation that the world is 80% non-white. And that this is not a great imperial mode. Like it's just not a way to present yourself and then expect to continue to grow your spheres of influence. So I think there's a level of discomfort domestically that makes it hard for that to become the core. I mean, he may want that there. I don't think that, I mean, I don't doubt at all that there are enormous elements, swaths of the United States that are happy to come up with an alliance with Putin and Orban and then allow electively. I mean, so that's another ad hoc coalition kind of mentality of just the club is not based on democratic credentials, but white Christianity or whatever it is. But it just feels like not only there isn't, I mean, there's no strategic thinking in the Trump camp itself because, you know, he doesn't truck an expertise. They're not, I mean, everything is, is just basically the currency of short terminism and his own instrumental calculations. But there's a whole foreign policy establishment that benefits dramatically from many of his moves that remain consistent, whether it's on trade, whether it's on, you know, this rivalrous worldview that endorses mass military spending. I mean, there are tons of things that that Trump is directly delivering. And this particular register at home delivers a ton. But what alignment it actually produces long term, there's not, I just feel like there's not an institutionalized foreign policy base that's like, let's rebuild a Christian camp. Yeah. I don't know. Try. Well, you know, I think it's significant that he's giving speeches like this, and that he's using this ethno-nationalist register, because it, you know, it highlights the increased return of straightforward, you know, white white supremacy as an explicit mode of of American politics, and it also, I mean, is a is a striking repudiation of the way in which the U.S. has justified its own authority. You know, going all the way back to Truman, basically saying that we have to move toward, you know, some degree of civil rights reform domestically because most of the world is not white. So that's something that is really distinctive, but at the same time. 
I feel that this stuff can get overstated because the truth of the matter is that the bread and butter of Trump's foreign policy has been pretty consistent with national security establishment positions going back now for decades. There might be internal debates about you know, how hawkish or belligerent to behave toward Iran or towards China. But a vision of dividing up the world into these various kinds of rivalries, pursuing a set of overarching geostrategic objectives, that's basically what, you know, Trump's been doing. And to have this kind of a kind of radical shift, you know, just it would require a degree of long term strategic rethinking that's just inconsistent with the kind of general incoherence and ideological incoherence, frankly, that's come out of the the Trump administration. So it's important that you're getting this rhetoric. It tells us something about shifts in domestic politics in the U.S., but I don't think it really tells us something fundamental about changes in national security objective. Uh, Usla, what do you think? Yeah, um, I would agree with those points and just think that we shouldn't mistake the failure of Trump's most rousing sort of blood and soil speech, blood and soil speeches, as you put it, Dan, to materialize in a kind of Christian coalition for a failure of Manichaean thinking on the part of the Trump administration or the U.S. establishment. So it may not be that they're going to build a racial coalition with Putin to conquer, you know, Asia. But they have um, certainly established a set of racialized frames with respect to, as as he's already pointed out, Iran, China, others. These are scripts that are that exist in the underlying bipartisan consensus of foreign policy establishment. And so these kinds of speeches by Trump may not be so much designed to produce a new sort of coalitional politics as much as to underscore to his own base the ways in which the places where his policies coincide with that pre-existing foreign policy establishment are not just expressions of an earlier ongoing trend line, which is how we analyze them, but also continue to be consistent with his racial framing that is designed for domestic audiences. To what extent have American politicians reflected along the way over these past three decades, reflected upon the fact that the multilateral order they, they've been tearing down had been erected precisely to protect American power? To, and, and to what extent is there there a lingering attachment to a more Cold War model multilateral order among liberals in particular, something that's evident in initiatives like the nuclear accord with Iran? I think that um, U.S. elites don't understand themselves for the reasons that Aziz was pointing to in the Clintons and Bush's um, sort of self-perception. American elites don't think of themselves, including the Clintons and the Bushes, as the agents of the erosion of the existing multilateral system. They think it's under pressure in a variety of ways, and if anything, that they've acted to shore it up. So I think there's simultaneously an anxiety about the end of excuse me, liberal international order, which is rehearsed ad nauseum in any number of articles titled along those lines that are written by, authored by people who are from the foreign policy establishment without any reflection of the ways in which the United States has actually been the instrument of that unraveling. And that's sort of what our interventions have been designed to highlight. But in thinking about the anxiety piece, letting a lo- putting aside for a moment you know, the agency that the United States itself and these elites have exercised in that unraveling, um, why this anxiety about the liberal international order? And the, there are a number of competing, I think, accounts. One is that 
this order may come to be replaced by an order dominated by or articulated by or framed around the interests of another actor. And that's really, that I think is fully crystallized in all of the sinophobia that we see at the moment and that I know we're gonna engage in. And then another set of concerns is that as these institutions erode, the price of hegemony, the need for coercion increases. And there's a question about the degree to which the United States can sustain empire in this mode. And that requires a set of ad hoc arrangements to be made to shore up and decrease the transaction costs of American empire at a time when the core institutions don't seem to be serving their purposes in quite the right way. And this is what generates the need for side agreements like the JCPOA. There was an option instead to pursue a multilateral agreement from within the United Nations framework and the non-proliferation treaty regime, which would have required a broader vision for the Middle East of regional denuclearization, weapons-free zones, et cetera. None of that was even considered by U.S. elites. Instead, their preference was to have a negotiating context dominated by the United States, uh, in which it set the table and asserted its interests, but that would contain on an ad hoc basis this or that rival. So the very thing that liberal elites are doing as a response to their own anxiety about a liberal international order or rules-based order that isn't holding any longer is further defection from that order because there's a path available to them even to accomplish the end of, say, a nuclear agreement with Iran that could have traveled through multilateralism. But that's no longer really part of the imagination. And the reason for that is that it's not clear that that would directly serve efficiently and expeditiously the sets of American interests they're trying to advance. So their short-term thinking in the Obama administration, as much as in any other administration, causes them to prefer these kinds of ad hoc arrangements from outside of the existing order and then attaching them in one way or another, if possible, to that order. So negotiate under conditions that you define, and then get the Security Council to approve whatever the outcome is. It was essentially a bilaterally negotiated a set of agreements between U.S. elites and Iranian leadership that then you bring in the remaining powers in order to present in a sort of multilateral language. But that itself avoids the actual multilateral solution that for, first of all, decades, Iran itself has signaled that it was prepared to engage in, which would have been a region-wide security architecture that actually denuclearizes the region, or uh, for that matter, treat your other allies as meaningful stakeholders that themselves require some diplomacy and some and some sort of idea of American compromise around interests. Those things are not available because in a, because we continue to imagine ourselves or that elite imagines itself in unipolar terms. And so it's unwilling to actually pay the diplomatic price of being multilateral, even as it expresses an anxiety about the absence of that option. It's remarkable how distorted the U.S. politics, political debate around the Iran deal have become, because what's What's never made clear enough about the Iran deal because of the way it's it's narrowly defined within the parameters of partisan polarization is that it formalized Iran's subordination within the U.S.-led order. I mean, of course, that's a, that's something to celebrate as an accomplishment. I mean, part of yeah. what's interesting is <laughs> that is how it's presented as, look, Democrats are able to understand U.S. interests in a broader way because we created this agreement that fundamentally contains Iran. And for you, GOP, to oppose that is simply to oppose a strategy of maintaining U.S. primacy by constraining enemies because you're lifting up these things. And of course, the GOP, I mean, 
if, if you know what one doesn't want to speak too hastily about what the motivations are of the Trump administration at present, but the <laughs> the, the sort of double move of ratcheting up sanctions, maximum pressure campaign, while actively removing what little constraint remains on the nuclear program, seems to be a green light for the Iranians to fast track their nuclear program as much as possible, driving in the direction of a much more serious and militarized confrontation down the line, presumably. Aziz? Yeah, I mean, so I think one of the things that this exchange highlights is that, and it's, I mean, it's just something about the mainstream conversation, let's say, within center right, center left. And it's the extent to which multilateral institutions are both understood now as means to the end of American primacy, but also you know, are not not seen as institutions who the primary beneficiary is the U.S. itself. And this, I think, is actually really significant because it's part of what's opened the space for the kind of Trumpian attack on international institution as such. Like, so what is the, the conventional presentation of the U.N., the Charter, the Geneva Conventions, um, the World Health Organization, that you, you name it? Like, the conventional presentation is that the U.S. at the end of World War II, out of its own kind of moral largesse, d- committed to establishing a set of institutions that primarily facilitated the security of others and their own kind of domestic development. And indeed, like that's basically the presentation that Obama gave when he gives his like Nobel Nobel Prize speech. Like it's a defense of American primacy, an assertion that what the U.S. has underwritten for decades has been the world's well-being. He takes the opportunity to chide critics of the U.S. Yeah, exactly. So, and it so it's all framed in this way, which is, you know, when the U.S. asserts its international police power, intervenes, it does so because it's basically serving the interests of others. And this kind of moral frame means it's very, very difficult to perceive the extent to which the defections are themselves defections that in the long run harm U.S. security interests. So if in the 40s and 50s, the original Cold Warriors understood that like, well, we're setting up these institutions because we're in fact the primary beneficiaries of these institutions, what ends up happening a half century later is that the kind of the moralizing and self-justification that really what the U.S. is doing is is just serving as like the first the first nation in the world with great response with the uh, great power comes great responsibility like all of this stuff means that that basic initial approach disappears and then it creates this space for folks like Trump to say well what the heck you admit that we're not really the beneficiaries of these institutions so why should we be spending all of this money on propping them up. You know, we shouldn't be giving money to the WHO if the leader of the WHO is going to be critical of like the US's pandemic response. Like we shouldn't be in the business of being the, you know, the primary financer of these various institutional forms. And, you know, there's no need to pursue like multilateral approaches. And so there's a way in which the the kind of centrist presentation of the US as like inherently good and that's why it's willing to be constrained and then the far right presentation of well if it's not in our interest then we should defect end up kind of coinciding the account that the US had provided of the original multilateral architecture was a kind of enlightened self-interest so now what's taken the place of that idea that these institutions serve in our own interest and, and you know, that you constrain yourself in the short term for long term benefits or even medium term benefits or just strategic benefits and you think not exclusively tactically 
the tactical frame is one that requires understanding international institutions as basically subordinate instruments of American interests. And if they're not serving this purpose, then they should be jettisoned. But it's it, you mean in the immediate term? In the immediate term, right? So the yeah. WHO should take dictates right now from the Trump administration. If it fails to do that, we disinvest. If you know the WTO is not serving the purposes of our trade war, we're withdrawing from the WTO, et cetera. The one place where we don't see this, where the enlightened self-interest account persists, is in the way that the U.S. Fed understands its role as a lender of last resort at the international level. And that, too, I think is going to come under increasing political pressure as people come to understand that these dollar swap arrangements may actually inure to the benefit of not just allies but adversaries. And that global stabilization of markets means that you have to actually care about you know, economic stability more broadly than allies and adversaries. But putting that to one side, it creates the space that Aziz just spoke of. It also actually creates this other really interesting phenomenon, which is when other actors in the international system invest in those same multilateral institutions, instead of understanding that as burden sharing and positive, it's understood as threat. So how does China come to be a vital threat? And where what are the arenas in which China is allegedly competing with the United States? I mean, China is the most non-interventionist from a military perspective world power that we have. If you look at the Security Council, every one of the other permanent members has engaged in multiple interventions, military interventions over the course of the last decade. And China hasn't been involved in a direct military intervention in decades. It's also not an especially significant military threat in any other respect, including its investments in the military, even if it's building up its military. The place where it's a vital threat and competitor is, of course, in the economic and technological arena, but also increasingly its activities in these international institutions. The effort to have influence or to expand soft power is itself understood as a threat. So another source of the illegitimacy of the WHO at the moment, for example, is that China is a funder. A reason to be suspicious of the IMF's lending practices is that China now has an increased share in, and which share is bought by China actually contributing a larger amount to the IMF budget. All of these things are understood in this zero-sum way that's totally out of keeping with the original architecture, which was understood as the more participation and the more investment in these institutions, the greater the benefit to the United States. That script is completely gone. And so instead, we actually now have a situation in which elites may endorse an understanding of the very institutions that the United States is the author of as an arena of competition from which we should withdraw support unless they exclusively serve American purposes in ways that actually diminish the role of other powers. I mean, it's just a complete inversion of the, the purpose that the architecture was supposed to serve and of the, of the logic of multilateralism. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism by Megan Day and Micah Utrecht. The political ambitions of the movement behind Bernie Sanders have never been limited to winning the White House. Since Bernie first entered the presidential primaries in 2016, his supporters have worked to organize a revolution intended to encourage the active participation of millions of ordinary people in political life. In Bigger Than Bernie, 
Activist writers Megan Day and Micah Utrecht give us an intimate map of this emerging movement to remake American politics, top to bottom, profiling the grassroots organizers who are building something bigger and more ambitious than the career of any one candidate. Bigger Than Bernie offers unmatched insights into the people behind this unique campaign and a clear-eyed sense of how the movement can sustain itself for the long haul. Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism by Megan Day and Micah Utrecht. Out now from Verso Books. A key piece of this idea of, of enlightened self-interest that you two discuss is, is how American universalism always had racial hierarchy embedded at its core. And this notion that America's mission in the world was was to lift up various people to our level. Woodrow Wilson posited these distinct ethno-cultural peoples at different stages of development towards achieving the capacity for self-government, which was embodied in the League of Nations mandate system, then came modernization theory amid the Cold War and decolonization, and then finally the neocon war on terror promise of democratizing and liberating the Muslim world. How did this universalism manage to constantly be such a fundamentally nationalist and racist one? As you were just pointing out, Aziz, how did justifying empire by describing it as a global welfare project ultimately open imperial institutions to right-wing attacks that those institutions are loathsome because they're welfare institutions redistributing wealth from from us to these stigmatized others. So I think that the thing about American universalism, and this is really not unique to the U.S., this is kind of a story of a lot of the great empires. You can tell a version of this with Britain, you can tell a version of this with, with France and with others as well, is that all empires like to think of themselves as exceptional as unique. It's the other empires that are engaged in extractive violence, but like we're the ones that are actually operating in ways where our interests are the same interests as the world. And the way that this plays out with universal claims is that you have to make this double move. You have to both say that the country's interests are the world's interests so that it's a kind of universal nation, but then you also have to justify, well, why is it that you should be the ones that at the end of the day, make the ultimate determinations about you know what other people's interests are. And the way that Americans uh, essentially developed this sort of second move is by saying, well, that the country was is culturally unique. It's the place where the Enlightenment came down to earth. It's embodied in its Declaration of Independence, in its the constitutional document, that the U.S. is grounded in certain principles of self-government, and that these are the product of a very long history of acculturation into democracy that's tied to, you know, Puritan settlement and you know the the move across the continent manifest destiny all of these kinds of things and so you have a marrying of a claim about universalism with a claim about cultural particularity and that at different moments in time through different kind of ideological frames it could be woodrow wilson's sort of white supremacist claims about different ethno-national peoples on sort of like different levels of development, or it could be modernization theory, or it could be democracy promotion during the early 21st century in Iraq. What you have marshaled is the idea that because of the U.S.'s unique history and experience, it is particularly suited to help other societies develop on the path toward full-fledged liberal democracy. And so that when it intervenes, it's not 
engaged in empire. It's not imposing institutional outcomes. It's actually just using its own kind of experience to help tutor less developed societies on the path to full freedom. Now, the thing that's really noteworthy about this, and this is, I think, a way of thinking about the turn against the Bushes in the Republican Party in the wake of the Iraq War, is that examples like the Iraq War are not that unusual, which is you claim to be providing freedom and democracy, but really what you're doing is in violation of local self-determination. You're facing a huge amount of local blowback. And the traditional kind of American sort of uh, millennial approach has been to not understand this. Like, why is it that despite our good intentions, folks on the ground are so uh, so opposed? It's not to think, well, maybe there's something wrong about the structure of how the U.S. is intervening, but it's to imagine, well, maybe we didn't do it right this time, or maybe there's something wrong with the underlying community. And how this became a debate in the Republican Party was that you had an increasing number of folks on the far right say, this whole project is nonsense. Like, why are we, out of our own moral largesse, trying to help folks in Iraq when maybe they're just not racially, ethnically fit for this kind of freedom? And so what we should be doing instead is just straight up containment of a kind of like racialized violence that we're experiencing from the outside or retreat. And so Trump can present himself while still, you know, being committed in a deep sense to perpetuating the American century as a voice of like anti-war politics because of a claim that, well, these folks on the ground just can't really understand our freedom and we shouldn't be in the business of attempting to promote it. Yeah, if I could come in, um, I completely agree with that um, description. And I think it also points to why these kinds of presumptions of civilizing mission can never ultimately be countered because any failure of the project to, you know, have democracy take hold in this or that part of the world is inevitably explained through the pathologies of that place. So the war on terror, of course, made this all the more sort of readily available. Muslims are already presented as incubator of threat and, you know, pathologically committed to violence. And so, well, you know, we did our best. We engaged in exactly as as he says, this kind of moral project in Iraq, the freedom of agenda. We tried, we did our best. And it turns out that it's not so easy. These are not places where pluralism and liberalism can thrive and they're, you know, uh, mired in ethno-sectarian conflict and their own deeply pathological dysfunctional problems in a culture of Islam. So what is all of this then underwrite? It not only underwrites a kind of account of the Middle East that continues to double down on the claim that it's an incubator of violence as opposed to the place where violence is visited most frequently by intervention, notably by the United States from the end, you know, from the post-war period, I mean, from the the Cold War period to the present, just a continuous record of U.S. interventionism is presented instead as a record of the inherent pathological and dysfunctional qualities of that region. But then also it enables Trump, exactly as Aziz was just saying, to present a military withdrawal as a uh, withdrawal from the region, which is, I mean, those two things are extraordinarily different and it's worth making this point, which again, our Boston Review piece, which is about how the United States exerts economic coercion to shape the region is, I think, incredibly important. So there is now also a consensus. If you look at sort of liberal hawks, realists, et cetera, everybody is prepared to say pivot to China and withdraw from the Middle East. That's now a kind of conventional wisdom in the Beltway. But what does withdraw from the Middle East mean in this context? It means 
remove troops on the ground. And there's a way of describing the American sort of presence in the region as entirely about boots on the ground, which actually has very rarely been, I mean, that happens to be the case in the post-Cold War period. There was an, a radical expansion of troops on the ground from the 1991 Gulf War through the 2003 Iraq War and some of the counterterrorism operations in other countries. But the truth is the way that the United States shapes the regional order in the Middle East around American hegemony is entirely about the mobilization of economic resources making a particular military configuration possible on the ground, funding Israel, funding Egypt, funding Saudi Arabia in order that they can acquire American weapons, American training, and build a, a sort of set of regional garrison states that are committed to an American vision of how that region should be ordered. And there doesn't appear to be any defection from that idea in the in the same establishment that today is calling for an American withdrawal from the Middle East. That withdrawal is conceived exclusively in terms of troops and not even bases, but rather the dissemination of troops across the region, the diffusion. And instead, we should double down on our core security commitments in the region, which are, again, ensuring stable energy flows, shoring up our Gulf allies and Israel in ways that in any case, we almost entirely did by defining the economic playing field and the military playing field in the region by putting an enormous hegemonic thumb on the scale of how power is distributed internally to that region. And that, and that continues to go as an unquestioned article of faith of how and so, I mean, to present this as a kind of anti-militarist or demilitarization of the U.S. presence in the region is just a fundamental uh, diversion. As you mentioned, you two wrote an article for the Boston Review on, more specifically, on the U.S.'s crushing sanctions on Iran, but then also more generally, how sanctions commandeer and coerce third-party countries' economies to impose sanctions that they have not agreed to impose and might very much oppose imposing. And now all of that's become a core tool for geopolitical rule in the U.S. since the 1990s. Why did this particular form of economic governance emerge when it did after the fall of the Soviet Union? And how is it that this sort of economic power is able to be portrayed as somehow softer or, or more normal than raw military power? There is a common presentation of sanctions now that basically unites the center left and the center right as the policy of choice that's the alternative to a kinetic military action or intervention. So sanctions are, first of all, legitimate because they enable us to pursue interests without committing military forces or engaging in a militarization of a particular conflict. That presentation is you know, sort of obfuscates the underlying fact that all of the options that are being considered as policy tools are coercive. And there's a fundamental disinvestment from diplomacy as a strategy for managing and engaging with both allies and adversaries at the end of the day, and instead thinks about American policy as designed to pursue U.S. interests by uh, imposing kind of coercive frames of us and them against adversaries. And then it has a second dimension in the post-Cold War period, which it didn't in the Cold War period, of producing also coercive pressures on allies 
to line up behind unilateral American preferences. So why does this happen and how is it different than the Cold War period? Um, in the Cold War, the United States used sanctions as a tool. But in the Cold War, by definition, in a bipolar order, countries that faced sanctions from the United States had the option of pursuing a relationship with the Soviet Union, of seeking to get subventions of one kind or another from another axis. And because there was a broader constraint on the way that the United States might conduct itself, even as it increasingly used sanctions against adversaries, it was reluctant to use secondary sanctions in ways that would compel allies to participate in American foreign policy choices that didn't have multilateral support. And so Cuba then and Iran now would be two cases to compare. Excellent examples. Yeah, exactly. So you... The United States might have attempted in the Cold War as well to pursue multilateralism with respect to sanctions and to devise sanctions in ways that might generate support from coalitions. But if that failed, the United States would pursue what it does today, imposing unilateral sanctions, which had very significant effects. But those effects were mitigated by the presence of an alternative set of markets and actors and by the fact that the United States was more limited in the ways in which it pursued those objectives with respect to getting other allies on board with the project. Post-Cold War, the alternative, first of all, is taken off the table. So there isn't a Soviet Union that one can turn to as an object of U.S. sanctions in order to mitigate their effect. But also the United States became less and less willing to be constrained in its resort to secondary sanctions. So in the 1990s, when this was first put on the table, uh, under the Clinton administration, there was actually a significant pushback from the European Union when there was a possibility that the European Union might face secondary sanctions for ongoing relations with uh, Iran or Cuba or Libya. There was a framework put in place for secondary sanctions, but they weren't deployed. Once we're in the world of the war on terror and a massive underwriting internationally of the use of U.S. global financial primacy to engage in counterterrorism finance uh, interventions of a variety of kinds that involve close policing of financial transactions, disruption of banking practices where there's a suspicion of money laundering or use of banks to engage in terrorism finance, that gets supported very broadly in a moment post 9-11 when the us versus them paradigm is attractive to core U.S. allies to remain on the us side of that equation. So the Europeans very happily sign up and also most other allies in the international system agree to participate in a universe in which U.S global financial primacy is transformed into a mechanism also for worldwide fin financial surveillance and powers to engage and interdict everywhere transactions that are deemed to violate red lines around, counter uh, around terrorism financing. That system then produces a very different context for secondary sanctions, where sanctions are designed for, for other purposes that are unrelated to counterterrorism, and in which resistance to participating in U.S. schemes whereby dollar dominance is transformed and that hegemony, U.S.'s dollar hegemony as a reserve currency in the international system, is transformed into a set of weaponized financial capacities for surveillance and intervention, that's already been underwritten by a host of allies who are now suddenly faced with a world of the United States being willing to use secondary sanctions. And this policy tool, not only there's an overall trend line from the Bush administration through the Obama administration to the Trump administration of increasing use of sanctions in this vein, but their scope enlarges dramatically. And so it becomes a, a universe now in which the position of the United States in the global financial order enables it to fully isolate countries completely from the possibility of trade or financial engagement 
ultimately now belatedly producing a backlash whereby other countries are seeking to find mechanisms to get around dollar denominated transactions to limit the ability of the United States to use this tool. Ironically, is is the U.S. using the power that it derives from the dollar being the global reserve currency in a way that will incentivize a push away from the dollar as a global reserve currency? And if so, does that reveal a, a contradiction between the unilateral use of U.S. power and the fact that this power ultimately derives from forms of multilateral consent? I mean, this is the dynamic we're pointing to throughout this conversation. That's exactly what's happening. The constant resort to the discretion to use unilateral measures is causing very clear forms of defection, withdrawal of consent from a multilateral system that radically benefits the United States. I mean, in ways that are totally indisputable. I mean, the fact that the dollar is a reserve currency means, amongst other things, that the United States benefits from an extraordinarily low interest borrowing that fuels deficit spending that has created a structure in which the worldwide financial order essentially underwrites and subsidizes American military spending. I mean, that's the world of how the American global financial hegemony is translated directly into increasing American hegemonic power. And so the calculus that you want to retain that position is is something that, you know, has uh, complete adherence across the ideological spectrum in the United States. But at the same time, the ability to constrain oneself from engaging in tactical short-term thinking about the immediate benefit of squeezing Iran a little harder or imposing even further uh, restrictions on Venezuela and so forth has proven irresistible in exactly the same way that we're describing more generally with respect to the multilateral order. And so the U.S. is unwittingly leading the campaign to c- create a multipolar world with Bancor at the center of its of its monetary system. And it's hard to say unwittingly because it's being written about again constantly the anxiety as we've said is con- uh, you know reiterated over and over again by elites that you know there's a real worry here what if we lose this hegemony we may not be able to continue to use sanctions policies in this way if we're not careful and we overuse and abuse it it doesn't change the dynamic whereby the United States cannot restrain itself. I mean, the arguments for self-constraint have simply not been sufficient to limit that kind of tactical thinking. Aziz? Yeah. And I think this also just highlights specifically with sanctions, similarities and differences with the Cold War period. So there's a way in which the use of sanctions after the end of the Cold War and before have a real continuity, which is, for example, like the embargo against Cuba, So the U.S. would be a natural trading partner. Um, This is meant to immiserate the population in Cuba as a way of highlighting a geostrategic point, which is there is no socialist economic alternative model. That's an alternative to the American-led order. And so that the options really are stark. It's an us versus them politics, like either you accept American Cold War dictates or your populations basically get immiserated. And it's that same kind of logic that you see post-Cold War with the use of sanctions. So, for example, even you know now in the context of Iran, you have American officials that are just explicitly stating, either you negotiate with us, accept our dictates, or face economic collapse. So that there's a kind of c- continuity in objective. But then there's this really significant difference, which is the point that Usla is making about secondary sanctions. So just to like make sure that everybody's like clear about what secondary sanctions mean, it's the idea that the U.S. imposes sanctions on a country, a company, a set of individuals. Right now, the U.S. has sanctions on 
33 different countries in some form, some quite comprehensive, like what we see in the context of Iran, Venezuela, the most comprehensive would have been with Iraq under Saddam Hussein in the 1990s. But then what the US does, you know, starting in the 90s, and this is part of the reason why this is, you know, the 90s were called the sanctions decade, and then it just proliferates, is that the US also targets foreign states, companies that do business with a particular country. And those uh, foreign states companies might face criminal um, sanction here in the US. But that really, the more significant thing is that they're denied access to American financial markets. And this is a huge deal because of the US dollar hegemony. If the US dollar is the currency, the global currency, and you don't have access to US financial markets, that's a massive hit for your economy. So essentially, what you're doing is you're conscripting the rest of the world to abide by your sanctions approach and turning what might be like an embargo, where like, hey, Cuba can't do trade, like can't trade with the US, into what is effectively a siege of a particular country like Iran, where nobody really wants to necessarily engage in extensive business relations with with Iran and then face being cut off from US markets. And this is why this approach is like so destructive across a number of different dimensions. So dimension number one, without any kind of general popular awareness or discussion about this domestically in the US, what the US is essentially engaging in are indiscriminate forms of harm and immiseration against underlying populations in ways that if this was taking place on a battlefield would be viewed as an unacceptable violation of the laws of war. And then number two, it's in a context in which you're compelling foreign states to essentially abide by policies that are being developed by small coterie of officials. So the US-Iran policy is incredibly unpopular globally, and the US defection from the nuclear deal, incredibly unpopular. Uh, but European states feel like they have no choice but to back this, whether or not that's something that's compatible with what either they as officials or their underlying populations might support. And all of this you know, speaks to a, a general approach that's really built on kind of reasserting a very harsh form of, of nationalism, where either you accept American dictates or you face genuine financial ruin. And in a way, the reason why sanctions have proliferated is the same reason that they were popular during the Cold War, which is it's an alternative to boots on the ground. But if it becomes the easy go-to tool of both Democrats and Republicans, then basically what the U.S. is doing is it's using economic warfare to like make foreign economies scream without any kind of accountability, either at home or abroad. And the rare time, I mean, when an official speaks the truth about these goals, we're pursuing economic collapse, or famously in the late 90s, Madam Albright said, well, the price is worth it when she was asked by Diane Sawyer whether 500,000 Iraqi child deaths were acceptable as a price for the sanctions policy. Those are the only moments where you sort of see what it is that's actually being pursued, because this presentation of sanctions as the peaceful tool that's the alternative to engaging militarily is a way of essentially lulling domestic publics in the United States into a belief that sanctions are a policy that enable both the United States and other populations to escape the terrible price of war. But as Aziz says, the debilitation of infrastructure, and at a moment of pandemic, this is made especially clear, the deprivation of the basic economic means to enable a population to have access to health, 
you know, basic goods for subsistence, electricity to make it possible to have the core infrastructure for home and public health systems, sanitation. I mean, this is a way of immiserating a population and imposing almost exclusively civilian casualties that far outstrips almost any of our military engagements. So that basic presentation is both deeply flawed and what makes the appeal of these tools, because it's also easy to sell and difficult to see past without much more sort of fine-grained empirical information or an American official that's willing to name it publicly and say, yeah, 500,000 children dead is an acceptable price. When there's a domestic corollary there as well in the way that economic harms are are normalized as okay within within the liberal order domestically. As long as we're imposing it on others. Yeah. I mean, at this moment, you have, you know, elites on both sides of the partisan division clamoring to demand reparations from China because of economic damage wrought by, uh, you know, a virus. Suddenly, the notion that there are real equitable considerations and that policies may have implications or ramifications abroad that affect economies is a live idea that produces indignation in the United States. But of course, when the U.S. is offshoring those consequences and doing so deliberately with weaponized policies designed to produce these outcomes, those costs are made difficult for an American public to appreciate and are deemed attractive by American elites. Including proposals on the far right to electronically seize China's treasuries. Which again, like those kinds of collateral and asset seizures are par for the course. I mean, it's part of the sanctions model of the United States to begin with is to say we, you know, sovereign assets that are located in banks that we can reach may be seized by us at any time at our discretion. And that's another piece of this centrality in the global financial order. It's not just that whether you do banking with the United States, it's that U.S. banks serve as intermediaries for almost all bank transactions in the world. So whether your accounts, assets are denominated in dollars or located in U.S. banks is not at all the limit of the scope of the reach of U.S. extraterritorial jurisdiction when it chooses to exercise it to seize assets abroad, which means you can almost never, given, again, the the role that the dollar plays in the international order, you can almost never immunize assets or, or place them outside of the U.S. reach. Aziz? Yeah. So, uh, d- yeah, Dan, two thoughts. First, on your point about the link to the domestic, I actually think that that's that's a really uh, important one because, you know, I'd say it's not a coincidence that like the neoliberal age and the era of austerity is also the era of a sanctions regime that's really built around immiserating political, uh, you know, political rivals abroad. Because when you think about, you know, what austerity logic consists in, and we're seeing this again in the context of the pandemic, it's the idea that like wealth is not a commons. It's not something that is collectively shared to provide basic public goods and ensure the well-being of, of populations. That, you know, how is wealth being distributed even in a, the setting of COVID-19? It's being distributed to reduce as much as possible the risk of the owners of capital while at the same time essentially imposing risk on the most vulnerable populations, the way in which you know, the effects of the pandemic is really like a racial and class-grounded and class grounded pandemic. And you can say the same thing with the sanctions approach. What does the sanctions approach do precisely because it's grounded in dollar hegemony? It reduces all of the potential risk of really unpopular foreign policies um, for U.S. officials. You don't have to worry about boots on the ground. You don't have to worry about the diplomacy of actually convincing, you know, European states that your or Middle Eastern states that your policies are in fact the right ones. That what you essentially do is just outsource all of the risk to the country facing the sanctions, and then you know, in a pandemic context like Iran 
to the neighboring states that now might have to deal with rippling trans-border health collapse. So that's like one point where I think there's a clear consistency of domestic and foreign logic. And then the second point is that I think it's really critical to note that what's been the, the mainstream left of center conversation about sanctions in the Iran context, it's that because of the pandemic specifically, there should be a reduction in easing of sanctions for humanitarian reasons. And again, it's the kind of classic Clinton, Obama, noblesse oblige, like we have a moral responsibility. Well, at the same time, right now, you have Biden talking about ratcheting up sanctions against China. So there's no willingness to actually take a step back and think a little bit about its sanctions, again, not as a tool, but as a framework that defines how American economic coercion operates. And so, you know, from our perspective, the only response is not to say, oh, you should ease sanctions against Iran or this particular sanction is appropriate or inappropriate, but to basically say a genuine left position requires absolute opposition to the U.S. leveraging its role really as a central node in the global financial order to impose mass immiseration on publics. Like if you you have to begin with that framework, otherwise you're going to end up inevitably coming back to these like us versus them rivalries that are built around enriching yourself and your allies and impoverishing those that you view as on the other side. It's sanctions and bombs and the assassination of Soleimani. That's all that's that's left when the pretense of of Cold War principle is all gone. And thinking back, the invasions and occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan, they were still still hemmed in by this more conventional liberal constitutionalist ideology because Bush still insisted on trying to impose he tried to impose these for these, these liberal constitutional forms of government on both countries and legitimated both wars by pointing to to principles of of democratization and human rights. And then the project, of course, spectacularly failed. Is the war on terror then the, the critical juncture that turns the apotheosis of American power into a crisis? of American power and makes the contradictions harder to reconcile? So, you know, I don't know if there's a single moment. I think it's really better to think of the last 30 years as a kind of steady stream of events that make it harder and harder to get back to what amounts to 1991 with, you know, Bush Sr. talking about a new world order and a commitment to multilateralism. I mean, it's it's kind of a wild thing to think about right now. But with the first Gulf War and all of the problems with, with that invasion, so that's a war that I was and, and am opposed to, so this is not a defense of the first Gulf War. But it's still worth noting that Bush Sr. got UN Security uh, Council support for it even before congressional support. Um, something that would be, frankly, like inconceivable today. The idea that if the U.S. was going to war, it would first get authorization from a U.N. security resolution even before going to Congress. Since then, wh- what I think you know we would argue is that there's just a series of continuous events, and then the event that's really, you know, let's say like you know most explosive is the Iraq War and uh, the second Iraq War, and this is because it's prosecuted on false terms. It highlights a massive failure in the national security establishment, and it also makes it very, very difficult to plausibly argue that a U.S. sort of democracy promotion project organized around even constitution writing efforts in places like Afghanistan and Iraq are plausible as success stories. 
And then I think here we actually have to think of the Iraq war and its consequences as tied to the financial crisis in 2008. Because the one-two of the failure of the Iraq War and then the failure of the financial and then the consequences of the financial crisis is really to raise profound questions about the American model. Constitutional imposition, democracy promotion doesn't work, and at the same time, the idea of the American economic model as one that can actually generate mass global uh, material, pro uh, you know, progress that also seems like it doesn't work. You know, collectively, it makes it very, very hard to take seriously the idea that the U.S. has a particular kind of institutional form that can be replicated. And of course, even past then, you have a series of events. You have Libya, you have the, the politics around Syria, and then you have the rise of Trump. And so it's almost like a rolling tide that, you know, produces the contemporary state of events where, you know, maybe the Iraq war story is like a significant moment in time, but it, it only has the effect that it has because it's connected to all of these other crises. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I would really second particularly the frame that rather than looking for a, a moment at which you have a kind of uh, inflection point, it's rather this kind of relatively consistent trajectory away from the presentation of the Cold War period, all of which under the rubric of still not only a sort of American-led international order of some kind, but also an American century. So you have the, the kind of Roosevelt vision, you have the Reagan vision, those are all in the Cold War. You have tremendous variation in how the U.S. is presenting its account of prosperity. So Aziz already touched on austerity politics and so on. Those were consistent with a different way that the United States presented markets as the new engine for what prosperity was going to look like beginning in the 70s and a pivot that happens within the bipolar context. Now you're competing against the Soviet Union that is not as compelling as a model by the 1970s that it was in the mid-1940s, and you're presenting a market-based picture that defects completely from the welfareist account of the United States as providing a kind of global commons of, of material support for uh, welfareist redistributive politics at the international level, which you had at the moment of decolonization, which goes away and you get sovereign debt crises and so forth. But you have the Cold War period, then you have the post-Cold War period. And in the post-Cold War period, I think you could present as bookends the 1991 New World Order speech for, by Bush Sr. and then the September 11th attacks that are presided over by Bush Jr. because you get a pivot, not an inflection point that's the apogee of something, but a pivot in a direction of a different universalist frame. So if what Bush promised in 1991 was a new world order in which the United States would preside now over the end of history and emancipate uh, much of the world that had been blighted by you know, the Soviet Union and its sphere of influence and integrate them into world markets and so on. And that's the story of the 1990s in Eastern Europe democratization project, right? So that's continuous still with the idea that the constitutional model is being presented as the appropriate formula, but it's in the context of the defections we've already discussed throughout the 1990s away from the multilateralism. But you have the story of the transnational diffusion of American democratic and constitutional imagination alive and well in the 90s. And in the in Bush Jr.'s period, you have a new universal mission. I mean, now you have a, a project in which the world is confronted by a transnational threat, a global a problem that the United States is uniquely situated to respond to and lead a project, international project to counter. And those that join the United States are part of this kind of grand alliance against terrorism. And those that are against are going to be defined as 
you know, terrorists and their allies that are going to generate the new periphery. But in the midst of this and that freedom agenda that Bush Jr. then presents, and as you say, the democratization projects in Iraq and Afghanistan, you have still the continuous thread of every reassertion of these kinds of claims against the backdrop of the United States systematically defecting from the multilateral order through its unilateralism, and then domestically presenting itself over the course of these decades increasingly as actually internally a failed state, whether it's Hurricane Katrina that precedes the financial crisis or the financial crisis or the civil unrest that punctuates the Obama administration or now Trump and the incapacity of the United States to use the greatest wealth concentration of wealth in the international system to actually address a health crisis in its domestic arena. All of these things, I think, end up underscoring the fundamental disconnect between ongoing, you know, overwhelming U.S. power and any kind of legitimating account of its assertion. Pivoting to to the present from there, there's such a clear need for, for global coordination to combat a pandemic that is, of course, by its very nature, taking place at a global scale. But what we're seeing, of course, is often the exact opposite. Meanwhile, China I think this got touched on earlier, is in this odd position of defending multilateral institutions like the WHO that were built by the U.S. for the U.S. empire, even as the U.S. accused the WHO of being enthralled to China and thus totally cut its funding to the agency. What does the new politics of global public health mean for multilateralism going forward? And more specifically, what do you make of, of China somewhat moving to supplant the U.S. role in the U.S. system? I mean, I'll just go back to a point I made earlier, which is that this is an opportunity that likely will be seized upon, whether by the United States or by others, for a, a moment of reordering in the international system, because so many aspects of both globalization and international institutions and the sovereign even um, form have been called into question and brought under dramatic pressure simultaneously. So there's something distinctive about the nature of this crisis that produces a kind of window of opportunity along the lines that, you know, famously Rahm Emanuel had said at one time of the 2008 financial crisis, which is never... Um, let an opportunity go to waste. Oh, crisis go to waste. Yeah, exactly. Never let a good crisis go to waste. So... China, totally understandably, in a circumstance in which it has become an increasingly significant economic weight in the international order, presented with an opportunity like this, would seek to advance its own influence regionally and internationally and its soft power at a minimum. As I've already mentioned, so far, what we can say about China is that, of course, there are, and we can talk about this at some point if we want to, but there are many things that are troubling about the internal governance in China, repression, its treatment of, at the moment of Hong Kong, its overall posture towards Taiwan, the incredible racial project against the Uyghur minority within China. But as a player in the international arena, not only has it been one that is not particularly interventionist, interventionist, it really has a relatively low militarist profile. And again, we could talk about some of its near abroad South China Seas, Spratly Islands, but these cannot be compared to the very significant military engagement that all other world powers are pursuing at this moment, let alone the ones that the United States has long pursued in the name of its own sort of Pax Americana. Moreover, China is, what it's presenting as a package at the moment is the, the sort of provision of overseas lending in, to a significant degree, largely keyed to infrastructure projects, and a willingness to shore up the same multilateral institutions 
on which global coordination depends at a time when the United States is withdrawing. So the fact that the United States elects to withdraw funding from the WHO obviously presents a challenge internationally that an actor would step in and seek to fund it, whether it's the EU, which is also doing the same, or China, is an attempt to address what is a problem in the global commons with a global coordinated or cooperative solution. So if you're an actor in the global south that has faced the reality of the American century that we've been describing throughout this interview, which has involved discretionary interventions, extractive policies, austerity politics, mass indebtedness in which Many countries in the global South spend a huge proportion of their GDP just on debt servicing under the kinds of imagined systems of prosperity that were provided under the umbrella that the United States offered. The Chinese package is either comparable in the worst case scenario in which this lending ultimately is called down the line and involves a set of you know, beholden ties to a new Chinese sphere of influence in which debt, again, becomes a principal currency of... Look at the seizure of the collateral, the the port in, I believe, Sri Lanka as collateral a few years back. Right. So it, it, it's either comparable in that respect, or quite conceivably, it might look better. It might look like a set of, you know, a willingness to endorse the notion of redistributive policies in a variety of ways internationally without the overweening set of presumptions about what that should mean about the internal ordering of particular states without a, a, a strong frame being presented by China that would justify its direct intervention in the structuring of political relations within the state. So in that context, understanding why China presents a potentially attractive competitor to the United States is important to understanding the ways in which one might think about multilateral order. It's also an opportunity, as we've both highlighted, to rethink what progressive commitments ought to look like and how people living within the United States ought to press our own government to react. And in that moment, it is you know, what we would certainly endorse, and this is of a piece with the points that Aziz was making with respect to our sanctions piece, is global solidarity, an approach to wealth that is really about the global commons, mass redistribution, investment in health infrastructures, forgiveness of debt in a moment in which the servicing of foreign debt would come at a deadly price at the cost of civilian lives, and an understanding and appreciation that this pandemic presents not some kind of a natural phenomenon or biological occurrence that then has a natural distribution of risks and vulnerabilities worldwide, but rather interacts with clear political and economic structures that render certain populations vulnerable in ways that are highly racialized and tied to class, not just domestically, but globally. So what would a progressive intervention look like at this reordering moment? We have a lot of thoughts about that, but the likelihood right now either under the Trump administration or if in 2020 we see a change of administration under a Biden administration, that the United States will treat this moment as one in which we can rethink these basic presumptions around economic coercion and turn to a much more solidaristic model of global wealth and distribution seems incredibly unlikely. So in that circumstance, the rise of China not only makes sense from the Chinese perspective in terms of a way of projecting influence, which is just standard you know, geopolitics, but makes a lot of sense as something that might well be welcomed by much of the global South. You referred to this earlier, and you both discussed this in your article, that the 2008 financial crisis undermined the legitimacy of the American marriage of free markets and liberal constitutionalism, while making China's managerial authoritarian capitalism look good. And I'm not sure how those politics, how those dynamics play out now, since 
there are things going on that are helpful, but also harmful to China's reputation with this pandemic. And for example, while China's spending was key to the global recovery after the 2008 crash, it's not in a position to spend like that today. In fact, it's in a position of having these massive loans across the global south as part of the Belt and Road Initiative that for now can't be paid back. Obviously, the U.S. will come out looking just horrible once again because its response to the pandemic has turned our government into a spectacle of just pathetic and grotesque failure on the world stage. You know, and then there are other countries, South Korea, New Zealand, wherever that have effectively managed the coronavirus, but they have neither hegemonic aspirations nor capacities. So will any particular model really shine after this? Or is it more a matter of which model emerges less humiliated? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good way of stating it. I mean, so, you know, just to underscore the point that Usla made that, you know, I think this is a moment that highlights the necessity of kind of left internationalist thinking that's built around solidarity, which is that what we're seeing with COVID-19 and this global health pandemic is the extent to which there's no like nationalist solution. You can't really hide behind your borders and solve the problem that the collective problems that we have are global and they require solutions that are really built on thinking of a country's wealth as part of like a shared commons and taking seriously a commitment to redistributing wealth in ways that facilitate uh, the public health capacities of con- of countries abroad and you know vulnerable communities at home so there's you know i think a clear response we could call it something like a global new deal but without the kind of um, ra- the racially const- uh, constrictive and restrictive imagination that marked the us in the 30s and 40s we could call it a new marshall plan but without the us versus them politics of the cold war so there's a vision that's out there but the problem really is it's not on the table as a meaningful alternative. There are two meaningful alternatives that are being presented by what amount to the two great powers at the moment. There's the US approach, and the US approach is really about hoarding resources. So, you know, we see this with the the unwillingness to make um, PPE equipment like generally accessible. We see it with like the Trump administration basically making arguments that it doesn't want to engage in like limiting patent rights so that, you know, folks globally can have access to vaccines and medical technology. We see it with, you know, the refusal to fund institutions like the WHO. So the U.S. is actively participating in a policy that's about hoarding resources and stripping communities in the global south of access to necessary resources in order to be able to provide the basics for their own communities. This is, it's a policy approach that really delegitimizes American authority and leadership. On the other hand, you have a Chinese approach that's clearly about creating spheres of influence in ways that are comparable to the kind of policies that the U.S. pursued in the 40s and 50s, which is investing in in multilateral institutions so that then you can use those institutions to pursue your own security and other objectives, you know, providing infrastructure assistance and public health assistance through various kinds of projects, um, in part as a way to then conscript those states to be able to serve your own ends. Even if you don't actually call in the collateral, you make it very difficult for those states to actively oppose um, uh, domestic policies or actions that might be taking place in, you know, with the weaker community with Hong Kong. Like this is not 
ideal either. This is empire. And it's empire that's in the service of a state that is profoundly authoritarian, that's engaged in pretty extreme forms of violence against its own, you know, minority communities. But at the same time, if you're just, you know, if you think from the perspective of a state in the global south, it is a lot better. Like if these are the options, it's better to have access to resources under stringent conditions than to be actively stripped of resources. And really, I think the problem for the left is, you know, how do we think of alternatives beyond these two as what can end up defining, you know, the, the global community going forward? Like, how can we actually move to a situation where wealth is being treated like a global commons and it's not subject to the security dictates, either like utterly incoherent and self-defeating on the American part or, you know, with a kind of long-term strategic plan, but not at all consistent with what you think of as international socialism? Aziz Rana and Asla Bali, thank you both very much. It was great to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much, Dan. It was great. Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell Law School and the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom. He is currently finishing a book entitled Rise of the Constitution on the modern emergence of constitutional veneration in the United States and its lasting political effects. Asla Bali is a visiting professor of law at Yale Law School and professor of law at UCLA School of Law. She is currently working on an edited volume tentatively titled From Revolution to Devolution on prospects for decentralized governance in the Middle East. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting the inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. That's what really helps. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is huge. Huge.